All right, NBC Arlen, say good morning. How you doing this morning? Morning. Good? All right. If you got a Bible with you, go ahead and head to Mark 14. Uh, Mark 14, we're going to jump off from verse 43, and we'll move on down to verse 52. So Mark 14, 43 um, through 52. Uh, I'm going to read the text, and then uh, we'll take a moment to pray, and then we're going to consider what God has for us this morning. All right? So Mark 14, 43 through 52, here it is. It says, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth away. He left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What a way to end a passage. <laughs> and this, is the, this is the word of God. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the opportunity that we have yet again to gather together in order to hear your word preached today. Will you help us to focus? Will you help us to know that you are speaking to us whenever your word is open? Help us not to be distracted. Help us to consider how you are calling to live our lives as a result of hearing your word preached today. And God, we know that we can't follow you on our own. It is your power that gives us what we need in order to obey. And that power is ours because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we thank you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. If you agree, say amen. Hey, y'all, I might be showing my age here, uh, but when I was younger, uh, my mother, she used to take me and my brother uh, to the library, and my mom used to get mad at me because we would choose a, I would choose the same kind of book every time I would go. She would look at me, and she says, Eric, why don't you show, choose a different kind of book? And she wasn't talking specifically about a different genre. You see, when I would go to the library, the only book that I would ever read as a kid um, were those choose-your-own-adventure books. Anybody ever heard of those, choose-your-own-adventure books? All right, some of you guys don't know what that is, so let me explain to you what those are. So uh, a choose-your-own-adventure book is just like it sounds. So this book was written in a way that if you were traveling along with the narrative, if you were engrossed in a narrative, living your made-up fictional life, um, all of a sudden the narrative would give you a choice that you had to make as the reader. So say I'm reading a book about Johnny, the starting quarterback, and we're on the five-yard line, and there's two seconds left uh, for the state championship, and the coach calls to play, and the play is to hand the ball off to the running back. A book with that theme would give you a choice. It would say, right now, you can listen to the coach and hand off the ball to the running back, turn to page 23 if you want to do that. If you want to forget his play and call your own play and you be the hero, go to page 37. Right. And so that's the book. And if you're like me, I went to page 37. Right. Like I want to be the hero. I want to be the glory. I want I want to have the glory. And the reason why I love these books is because of the kind of control that it offered me. You see, if I made a choice and it let my character 
to a destination that involved hardship, pain, or even shame, I can just go back and choose the other shoes. I can just go back and choose differently. You see, I love these books because I deep, deep down inside, I wish my life was like a choose-your-own-adventure book. You see, I wished uh, that, uh, that, that my book, I mean, I mean, that, that my life, that any time I met hardship, pain, or, or, or frustration, that I could just go back and make another choice. I would love to avoid the pain or the hardship that a decision might cause. But that's not life, is it? When we find ourselves swept up into a narrative that caused, uh, that caused by a decision that we have made, when pain creeps in, we can't go back, can we? And so since we can't experience the results of our decisions before we accept them, we tend to do the next best thing. We tend to anticipate. What do I mean by that? If we anticipate that a decision might cause hardship or pain or frustration, what we tend to do is we tend not to make it. We tend to live lives of self-preservation. We tend to want to avoid pain. And I get that. But also, let's consider what it means for us to follow Jesus, though. To follow Jesus means this. That the fear of pain no longer is what drives the narrative of your life. What, me, what it means to follow Jesus is that faith drives the narrative of your life. So here's the question I want to ask today. What happens when faith brings you face to face with pain? What happens when your life brings you to a fork in the road? And when the story of your life brings you to a point where you have to make a decision to choose between faith or fear? When obedience will mean that somebody will get angry with you, or you might lose an opportunity, or you might experience a loss, or you might be thought less of when you are given an opportunity to obey God and experience pain or to disobey and self-preserve. The question I want you to ask this morning to yourself is this, which page will you turn to? What do we do when the obedience to God sweeps us up into a narrative that involves pain? How do we resist the nagging suspicion that the presence of pain always means that we make the wrong decision? And I think that question leads us to the text today. In the text that we studied last week, Jesus makes a decision. He makes a choice. You see, in the distress of the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows that to follow the Father's will would introduce pain into his narrative. And this is a hard pill to swallow for even Jesus. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, well, we heard this last week in a sermon um, that Pastor Joe preached, that Jesus is in, is in distress. He prays, he prays for a different way. He prays, to let, he prays to God to let this cup pass from him. And I'll pause here for a second because I think this prayer reveals something that we all need to remember about faith. Listen to me this morning. It is fine and normal to not desire pain. I feel like we all need to remember that because too many Christians sound like masochists. And, we, and it's almost as if we should be a people that take on pain from pain's sake. Like I hear pastors say that all the time. But hear me this morning, Christians are not a people that love pain. I don't love pain. Christians are a people that love Jesus. And listen to this, to love Jesus means that the GPS of your life is not set to avoid pain. I don't know if you ever do this when you have a GPS in your car. 
You know, often when I have a GPS on my phone or whatever, I'll set it to avoid, avoid tolls, right? Because I don't want to pay, right? And for many of us, you don't really care where your life is going as long as your life avoids pain. And if your life is set up like that, believe me, two things are true. You won't avoid it. And here's the second thing that is true. You will miss the full life that Jesus came to offer you if all that you're living for is to avoid pain. The greatest joy that you will ever have is a life whose destination is to follow the will of God. And when your destination is the will of God, here's the thing. You're going to travel through pain along the way. And the life of Jesus reveals that following him does not remove pain from your narrative. I love this text because Jesus stares ahead and he knows that obedience will cause pain. And what does Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane? He says, not by will, but yours be done. And if Jesus' life is like a choose-your-own-adventure book, he chooses to turn to the page that involves him following his Father's will. And in doing so, Jesus is swept up into a narrative that isn't pleasant. And the reason why we need to hear this in Arlington, Virginia, in the year 2023, is because this passage and Jesus' choice shows us and actually gives us hope when we need to choose obedience in the face of pain. So, so let's go ahead and do this. Let's go ahead and look at the text and let's and look closely at what happens to Jesus. Let's look at verse 43. It says, and immediately while he was still speaking... Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given him a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him underway, and lead him away under guard. And let's pause here because in the book of Mark, this is where the narrative begins to actually change a bit. You see, we're in the book of Mark and so far in this narrative, Jesus is the one that's driving action. Jesus is the one moving the action forward. He's doing the healing. He's doing the teaching. He's doing the leading. He's doing the forgiving. He's driving the narrative. And at this point, in verse 42 in chapter 14, the, the narrative shifts a bit. Jesus isn't doing the acting anymore. He is being acted upon. You see, Jesus makes a choice to follow the, God, the Father's will, and at this point forward, Jesus allows himself to be acted upon. Jesus is swept up into a narrative. Notice the word seized is repeated. It shows up multiple times in the text. Jesus is seized. He's being acted upon, and not only is he seized, he's also betrayed. So interesting here. Jesus' obedience, the choice that he makes in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweets him into a narrative that involves heartbreak. The text goes on in verse 43 to describe Judas, Judas' betrayer, as one of the 12. You see, the text could have just said Judas and kept moving and told him what he did, but it said Judas was one of the 12. Um, what does it mean for Judas to be one of the 12? Let me explain to you. The 12 were the people that were handpicked by Jesus Christ. Jesus handpicked these people. He loved these people. They were his closest earthly companions, his closest friends. Jesus broke bread with the 12. He poured out his heart to the 12. And here, one of the 12 looks Jesus dead in the face. And instead of receiving the love that Jesus had given to him and responding in kind, instead of falling on his face in worship to Jesus, he looks at Jesus dead in the face and he stabs him in the back. 
See, Judas had already betrayed Jesus, and at this point, he's here to finish the job. He shows up with a crowd ready to fight and to take Jesus by force if they need to. And if this wasn't enough, this crowd shows up, it's dark outside, and they want to make sure that they arrest the right person. And so it's interesting, Judas says, listen, I'll help you out, I'll give you a sign. Verse 44, he says, the one that I will kiss is the man, seize him, and lead him away under guard. What's wild about Judas' betrayal is that he uses an act of affection in order to do it. He uses a kiss. And I think this should tell us something about acts of affection. It reminds us that acts of affection to Jesus don't share the full story of our devotion to Jesus. It doesn't. Just because you show public affection for Jesus does not mean that you're fully devoted to following him. It's often when following Jesus means pain where our devotion really shows. See, Jesus was betrayed here. His choice to obey his father led Jesus to the heartbreak of betrayal. Here's a question for you. What would you do if obedience to God led you there? What would you do if obedience to God led you to the point that obedience to God meant that you would be betrayed by your closest earthly companion? That obedience to God meant that you would be betrayed uh, by your closest family members, your closest friends, those people who said that, you, that they were ride or die. I want you to hold on to that thought, and let's keep looking at the life of Jesus Christ. Because not only did Jesus' obedience sweep him into a narrative that involved heartbreak, Jesus' obedience swept him into a narrative that also involved shame. Look at verse 46. Verse 46 says, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Y'all, I want you to look at this scene. To the outside observer, it looks like a hot mess. Because here's the thing. Jesus in his ministry, when he comes on earth, the Messiah, he's a Jewish rabbi who is claiming to be the Messiah. He gathers these followers, these disciples. He, have a, he has a message that he's preaching. And these people, all these people around him, they believe that he's the long-awaited one. The Jewish people believe that the Messiah was one who would come to immediately restore God's people, Israel, to his former glory. Presumably, they thought by immediately overthrowing the Roman government. So presumably, they thought that the Messiah would come and do violent conflict, that he would take over, and that Israel would be in a place of his former glory. And this explains why the people coming to arrest Jesus show up with swords and clubs. See, they're expecting to fight. They're ready for Jesus not to, 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 to not go out without a fight. And right here is the point where it feels like people have realized that Jesus wasn't that guy. Because everything is crumbling around him. Imagine the scene. You're, you're a passive observer, passive observer, and you see Jesus' own disciples diming him out. You see Jesus cuffed and arrested, and he doesn't fight back at all. It's interesting. One of his disciples does, though. Mark doesn't tell us who this is, but John's account says that it's Peter, right? And so Peter, Peter's like, listen, all right, it's time. Jesus is the Messiah. Let's set it off. So he takes off his sword. He cuts off one of the soldier's ears. And what's crazy 
And to Peter's chagrin, Jesus doesn't even fight back. He doesn't join in. You see, in this text, Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested. He doesn't resist. And this is the point, I believe, that, that public opinion about Jesus lies to an all-time low. Jesus seems weak here. He doesn't fight back. He seems wrong here. He's arrested. Y'all, I've never been arrested before. But the closest thing I've been to arrested uh, was a fight that wasn't much of a fight in high school. And so I remember uh, the fight like it was yesterday. So I'm in the lunchroom. Lunchroom is packed. I went to a huge high school. And I'm sitting at lunch and I'm talking to my friends. And someone walks past me. He bumps me, and you know, because I'm a guy, and I can't, uh, because I'm a guy, and I had, I had some self respect, and I had a mouth at the time, uh, I couldn't let that slide, right? And, and so he bumps me, I turn, and I say something snide to him. I, I, I give him some choice words, and he gives me some choice words back, and we go back and forth, and I literally, I look at him, I wave him off, I say, listen, you're not gonna do anything anyway, keep it moving. And so right after that, I turned to my friend who, who's, who's right here, and I'm talking about the situation with him, and that was the wrong move, right? Because you never turn your head to someone who's hostile towards you, right? And so I'm talking to my friend, and I knew something was happening because as I'm talking to my friend, I see his expression change because he sees something and I don't. He sees a, a fist flying in my direction. And so I turn my head, and as soon as I turn my head, my face is white hot. Uh, this guy hits me with a two-piece. I mean, this guy said, you might have just ate your lunch, but I'm going to serve you with a two-piece and a biscuit. Pow, pow, hits me right in the eye, right? I get up, and I grab him. By this time, security comes, and they break, um, they, they break us up, and I'm being led away. Nose is bleeding because I, I got punched in the face. Hands behind my back. I'm being led out of this packed cafeteria, and I literally see everyone around me wearing their opinion about me on their faces. I remember walking past my peers, and I could see the look in their faces. They're like, look at his nose. He's weak. I remember walking past teachers in the cafeteria, looking at me thinking, I never thought Eric would get caught up in something like that. I looked wrong. And in that moment, I feel like in my high school self, who cares so much about the opinions of others, the shame felt unbearable. And I thought about that feeling when I thought about this text, because if there was anything in that moment that I could turn back the page and make another choice, I would have in that moment, because that shame felt unbearable. And here's the thing. Many of us are living our lives simply to avoid the feeling of shame. If obedience to Jesus means that you're shamed in front of other people, if obedience to Jesus means that you're shamed in front of the people that you desperately want to impress, here's the thing. For many of you, you won't make that choice. If obedience to Jesus makes you look dumb in an intellectual city like Arlington, if obedience to Jesus makes you seem backwards in a progressive city like Arlington, if, if obedience to Jesus makes you seem like weak in, the, in a powerful city like Arlington, we will hesitate to turn the page because shame is painful. And what I love about Jesus is that Jesus walked into this moment knowing that shame was coming. He knew that public shame was coming, and yet Jesus um, chose to turn the page anyway. In the eyes of so many people who were present, Jesus went from being a hero to, in their eyes, becoming a fraud. 
And Jesus is swept up into a narrative that involves shame. He knew betrayal was coming. He knew shame was coming. And he also knew isolation was coming. Jesus is swept up into a narrative that also involves isolation. Look at verse 48. It says, and Jesus said to them, have you come out as, a, as, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. You see, they come out against Jesus, expecting a fight and resistance, and he doesn't give them any of that, but he does point out their cowardice. He's, Jesus pretty much says, listen, I've never been hard to find. I've been teaching what I teach in the temple in broad daylight, and instead of choosing to arrest me in broad daylight, you choose the cover of silence, of, of darkness. You wait until now. And when he's arrested, do you see what happens in verse 50? It says, they all left him and fled. What's interesting about the original language and construction of this sentence is that the word all in the original language is actually the last word of the sentence. And so I like that because it actually carries the force that we need to hear, that, that, that we need to read here. Because you actually should read it like this, verse 50. You should read it like this. And they left him and fled, all of them, every single one of them. Everybody left him. They, he stood alone. And can you imagine in your darkest hour that nobody's with you? Can you imagine in your darkest hour that all the people who said they got your back, all those people who said they love you, they'll love you to the end, they forsake you, nobody's with them. You see, Jesus makes a choice here to follow the Godfather's will, even though he knows it involves heartbreak, shame, and isolation. And the question that we should have is why? Why did he do this? You see, what's interesting about this is that Jesus has every opportunity to get himself out of it. He's God, remember. So why does he allow himself to be swept up in a painful narrative? Why? It actually says in the text, look at verse 49. It says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. You see, Jesus submits the narrative of his life to the narrative of scriptures. See, what are the scriptures? Here are the scriptures. The scriptures is the true narrative that God is relentless in pursuing his people. I don't know about you this morning, but I am so glad that God has been relentless in pursuing me even when I stiffed on him. This is what the gospel is all about. We are constantly giving God reasons to not love us, and yet he never stopped loving us. He never stopped pursuing us. Our sin separates us from God, and instead of leaving us in that state, God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, to us. Jesus came willingly. He lived a perfect life, resolved to follow the will of his Father. And he followed the will of his Father, even though it led him to an old rugged cross. Why did he do that? In order to take the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. Our sin demands punishment. Our sin demands wrath. And if we remain in that state, we would die in eternity. We would die a death that means eternity separated from God. And yet Jesus died in the old rugged cross for our sin in our place, taking the wrath that we deserve so that we can be made right with God. Jesus shows betrayal, shame, isolation, and death. Why? To save you. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there's forgiveness in it when you trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross on your behalf. 
But not only does the cross grant us forgiveness. Christian, this gospel is the message that we need in order to cling to obedience when we come face to face with pain. And so before I sit down today, I want to make some quick points about this. And then I, and I'll sit down and we'll sing together. Here's one point I want to give you about the gospel. The gospel declares that you have the power to face the pain of obedience. That you have power to face the pain of obedience. So I love how honest that Jesus is. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat the Christian life. He straight up says that in this world, on account of me, that you're going to have trouble. What does Jesus mean by that? He doesn't mean the typical ups and downs of life that you can't, you can't get away from. He's saying as a direct result of obedience to me, you're going to be swept up into a narrative, into a storyline that you would not otherwise choose. That following me might involve pain. And Mark is writing this, and this is what I love about Mark the Gospel writer, because I want you to catch this. Mark the Gospel writer is actually writing to a group, a specific group of people. Mark the Gospel writer is writing during the time of the Emperor Nero. And he's writing to a people in which people, there was the live option that people would actually lose their lives for professing Jesus. And that's the reason why Mark constructs the gospel in the way that he does. You see, Mark, when he gets to the Passion Week of Jesus Christ, the whole gospel slows down. He, he, he goes through Jesus' life at a fast pace, and there's a few chapters where he simply focuses on the death and the passion of Jesus Christ. Why? Because these people in ancient Rome, they would likely be going the same way of Jesus if they followed him. You see, these people were suffering under the emperor Nero. These people knew that their choice to follow Jesus was going to involve unbelievable pain. During the time of Nero, to give you some examples, Nero was doing heinous things to people who declared that they were Christians. Nero was feeding Christians to dogs, or he would literally light Christians on fire, crucify them, and use them as torches for his dinner parties. Following Jesus literally meant pain, and Mark is writing these Christians whose, whose obedience will lead them face to face with pain. And the question that's a live question for them is how do we go on? How do we go on? They go on by first realizing this, that they are powerless to go on in the face of pain on their own. I don't know about you, but if you're like me, when I read narratives like this passage, I tend to imagine myself as the protagonist. So when I go to movies, every movie that I see, if I go to a Marvel movie, uh, I, I, I'm not waiter number four, I'm Iron Man, right? Like, like I'm the protagonist, I, I, I'm the hero, I'm not the sidekick, I'm not the villain, I'm not the supporting character. And so, because we all do that, it's easy for us to read our Bibles and bring that habit over. But something we have to remember when we read the stories of the Bible is this, you're not Jesus. When you read the narrative of this story, can I show you who you are in the story? Look at verses 51 and 52. Probably the most random and unintentionally funny part of the scriptures. It says, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth, and he ran away naked. So in this text, uh, there's this young man you see here that is actually following Jesus, and he's presented with a choice. Either stand with Jesus and suffer with him, or run from him and save your life. 
And this man runs so hard in the other direction that he leaves his clothes behind. And what's interesting about this is that Mark intentionally does not identify this person. Many commentators actually believe that it's actually Mark himself. And some say that Mark doesn't identify who this person is so that the reader will read themselves into the narrative. For them to see, that's me and you. That's your character in the narrative, that you are incapable of submitting to God's will as we should in the face of pain, that apart from the power of God, you will self-preserve rather than following Jesus. But here's the good news today, that the gospel of Jesus Christ grants you the power to endure pain. It does. And I love it because as a result of the gospel, we receive this power in the Holy Spirit. I love this because these same disciples that fled him, just a week later, Jesus, after dying on the cross and rising again, he appears to them and said, hey, you may have messed up a week ago, but guess what? I am coming to you after my resurrection, and I'm going to give you power. What does he say in Acts 1.8? He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And I love this. All these disciples that deserted Jesus, all of them, once they received the power of the Holy Spirit, they stood tall after that when obedience meant pain. And hear me this morning, the same power that dwells in them dwells in you as well. It does. This power is available to you. Listen to me, NBC Arlington. You have the power in you because of the gospel to obey Jesus even when, even when it's hard. The gospel, here's the thing, for too many of us, we think that the gospel is only a message of forgiveness. And so what we ended up doing is we take, the, we take God's grace for granted. What we do is we say, the gospel forgives me, but we never lean in um, to the gospel giving us the power to obey. And so we say, listen, when we come face to face with, um, uh, with obedience that leads to suffering, we just say, hey, listen, you know what, I'm just going to disobey God here and I'll ask for forgiveness later. But when you do that over and over and over again, what you're showing is that you have not received the grace in the gospel because the same grace that forgives you empowers you to obey. Let's keep it moving. Not only does the gospel um, declare that you have the power to obey in the face of pain, the gospel also declares that you are not alone in the pain of obedience. That you are not alone in the pain of obedience. Let me tell you something about the gospel really quickly. Jesus is not only betrayed, not only did he experience the most painful death imaginable, he was utterly alone, utterly alone in doing so. It's interesting. Even when Jesus was betrayed and and, and all of that, he always enjoyed his father's presence. He always enjoyed the approving love of his father. And when he hung on the cross paying for the sin of the world, in that moment, all he felt was the Father's wrath instead of his love. And that was too much for Jesus to bear. Even at that point on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is what Jesus went through for you. He was utterly alone by himself, paying for the sin of the world. And hear me this morning. Jesus was utterly alone in his pain so that you don't have to be utterly alone in yours. There is a presence and a fellowship that we can have with Jesus even when we have pain. Hear me. 
Obedience may cause people to leave you. Obedience may cause people to think less of you. Obedience may cause people to walk away from you. And that hurts. I'm not denying that. But can I tell you today that there is a joy that you can have in the midst of pain? There's a joy you can have because all may leave you, but Jesus promises that he'll stand beside you. He will. There's a joyful fellowship with Jesus. Hear me this morning. There's a joyful fellowship with Jesus that he only gives you on the other side of pain. And there's so many of us that I meet that are saying, all I want to do is experience the presence of God in a deeper way. And you say that, but anytime you brush up against pain in your life, you run in the, you run in the other direction. There was a fellowship in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. There's a fellowship that you only experience on the other side of pain. And you'll never experience if you always fold it aside of it. Hear me this morning. When you are living your life and you get to the page where you have to make a choice to obey or to avoid pain, hear me, I'm begging you, choose to obey. Your obedience may sweep you into a narrative that involves pain. But it also sweeps you into a narrative where you experience the joy of the presence of Jesus Christ. Keep going. I love it because Paul knew this. At the end of Paul's life, at the end of, at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul was in a circumstance that was actually eerily similar to Jesus. Paul described how he had been deserted. Paul described how he, he said, nobody stood beside me. Paul stood at trial. He was arrested. And because of the gospel, he was able to say something that Jesus even couldn't say himself. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But when Paul was alone, he knew that he wasn't alone. What did he say at 2 Corinthians 4? He said, everybody left me. And in the next verse, what does he say? But the Lord stood beside me and he strengthened me. I love this. Jesus is with you in the pain of obedience because he's been there. Man, I grew up in an old church that used to sing a hymn. And I love this hymn. It's a song called, There's No Friend Like the, like the Lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. None could heal our soul's diseases. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. You have a friend in the lowly Jesus. And when pain breathes you low, he'll meet you there. This is Jesus. I pray that you'll know that, that you'll experience that. But here's my third point, and the band could come back up. Not only does the gospel help you get through pain because of the presence of Jesus and give you the power to get through it as well, the gospel declares that there is glory beyond the pain of obedience too. Ben, you guys can go ahead and come back up. But there is glory beyond the pain and we gotta remind ourselves of that. And so I recently read a story about this concept called skip lagging. I don't know if you heard about this. I just heard about it this week. Uh, a skip lagging apparently is uh, a way that people try to get over on airlines. And so skip lag is when people pay for a full flight with a final destination um, but they always, but they intend to get off at the layover because like a direct flight costs more than a flight with a layover. So they pay, they'll pay for a flight to like New York or something, right? But they actually are going to Charlotte, the layover, and they'll get off there. You see, their flight itinerary is not over yet. And what they do is they shoot their layover as the final destination. And I want to encourage you this morning to not skip lag the Christian life. Well, what do I mean by that? 
The reason why many of us have such a hard time obeying in the face of pain is that we can't see beyond the pain. So when it comes to following the will of God, we get off at the layover of pain. We are tempted to believe that pain is the final destination. (laughs) But here's the encouragement for the Christian this morning. Pain is not your final destination. Pain is a brief layover before paradise. I love what Paul reminds us of. He says, our pain is light and momentary compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. And so here's the thing. We don't travel to pain, guys. We travel through pain. We got somewhere else that we're going. And that's the gospel. The gospel is this, that Jesus doesn't simply travel to the cross. He travels through the cross. The cross is Jesus' painful layover on the way to glory. There is glory on the other side of the cross for Jesus. We see that in the scriptures. And what that means is this, because there's glory on the other side of the cross for Jesus, there is glory on the other side when you bear your cross for him. This is what that means. I love the writer of Hebrews encourages believers going through pain in his letter. And this is how he encourages them. He says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything, including the fear of pain that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith for the joy set before him. That's his destination. He endured the cross, scoring against shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Y'all see that? For the joy set before him. His joy was on the other side of the pain of obedience. And hear me this morning, there's eternal joy on the other side of that as well. For too many of us, we think that we can get to glory by avoiding the cross. And Jesus said, you got to go through it. But the beauty of all this is that he's giving you the power to go through it. The beauty of it is that he's with you in it. And the beauty of it all is there's glory on the other side. And so for those in Christ, when your narrative brings you up to a point where you have a choice to obey and experience pain or disobey and experience temporary pleasure, choose the obedience with confidence. Turn the page. You have the power to do so. There's indescribable joy waiting for you on the other side of obedience. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that we do not walk through this life by ourselves. Thank you that you have given us the power to follow you. Thank you, Father, that your son Jesus is with us, even in the midst of our trials and our pain and our frustrations for following you. And Father, thank you that you are bringing us home. Help us to believe that. We love you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.